Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The Georgia Author of the Year Awards announced that Anissa Gray won the award for Best Debut Novel, The Care and Feeding of Ravenously Hungry Girls, is a family saga told by three sisters. A German-language novel from the early 20th century has its Viennese protagonist caught in the Atlanta race riots of 1906. We'll listen back to our interview about The Blue Stain. First a virtual celebration of films about our environment. Chattahoochee River Keeper is proud to have transformed the lifeblood of the region and source of drinking water for the millions of people living in the Atlanta area. Juliet Cohen is the executive director of Chattahoochee River Keeper, she joins us now with Andrew Linker, the Outreach Coordinator of Georgia Forest Watch. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having us. We are going to talk about the upcoming Wild and Scenic Film Festival. Before we get to that, Juliet, would you please tell us how Chattahoochee River Keeper began? I'd be glad to. Chattahoochee Riverkeeper was established in 1994, and the impetus for our founding was really the ongoing pollution of the Chattahoochee River. Much of it was stemming from a failing storm and sewer collection and treatment system in the city of Atlanta, and there were families and government agencies and communities, landowners up and down the river who were unsatisfied with the progress that the state agencies uh, were making on correcting the system. And so thankfully the Clean Water Act allowed a member organization like Chattahoochee Riverkeeper to step into the shoes and to respond to what was a public health crisis. Um, and now, 26 years later, we have made tremendous progress. This work continues. Um, even the work with the city of Atlanta and their system has continued. But of course, it has expanded um, much farther than that. Um, and now we work um, from the headwaters of the river above Helen all the way to the confluence of the river at the Florida border with the Flint River. Wow. So... The river is much, serves many more in terms of drinking water than just those in the Atlanta area. Absolutely. Uh, we understand that more than 5 million people rely on the Chattahoochee River for their drinking water. And of course, there are so many more demands on the river, everything from hydropower to irrigation and its inherent values of providing habitat for countless fish and wildlife and of course our quality of life. Um, so there are a lot of demands and uses for the river. On June 18th, 
the sixth annual Wild and Scenic Film Festival will kick off. What topics are included in the films you will screen? There are quite a few themes um, in this year's selection of films, everything from protecting human health, uh, dealing with environmental racism, uh, protecting wildlife, both here in the United States, but around the world, maintaining ecosystem balances, and of course, dealing with water and air pollution. So it's really a very wide spectrum of environmental issues. Indeed. What were the requirements for submission? Well, um, we bring this film festival from the South Yuba River Citizens Group, um, and they open submissions uh, for the film festival. They uh, vet the films and then they are um, open to organizations like Chattahoochee Riverkeeper who can then use our local perspective in selecting films that are most of interest to our community. So they go through at least two processes for vetting. Hmm. Now, this year's festival will be different. How will viewers be able to see these films? Well, I'm very excited about this year's film festival. Um, there is a little bit of a silver lining in the fact that we cannot be together at the Brunel Theater as we usually are, because this year, just about everyone can participate. You don't have to be in Gainesville. You don't have to be in the Chattahoochee River watershed or even in the state of Georgia, really anyone can subscribe and buy a $12 ticket and watch from home. So you have the benefit of watching um, from the comfort either on June 18th or any day in the five days that follow. Andrew, your film Georgia Mountain Treasures is part of the festival. Would you describe the content of the film? I'd love to. Georgia's Mountain Treasures is based off of a book that was published by Georgia Forest Watch last year in 2019. And it highlights some of the overlooked beauty and important topics in Rabin County specifically. The book and this film hopefully will be resources for those looking to understand our forests beyond kind of the most popular trails and waterfalls. Hmm. How did your work with the Georgia Forest Watch influence the creation of this film. I've been really fortunate to surround myself with people who have an eye for kind of the smaller beauties around us and also understand the really big topics like forest management, which can really affect water quality around us. So my work as outreach coordinator usually includes getting people out to say the headwaters of the Chattahoochee or other major rivers that start in the national forest but now we have the chance to compile it in a way that is hopefully encouraging people to protect these places. What has been your involvement with the Chattahoochee Riverkeeper? I've known of Chattahoochee Riverkeeper ever since 2009, and I've been involved in multiple ways, but really just want to support what they do to keep the water clean. Everything from educating um, children about the lakes and the streams around here and water quality, all the way to bringing adults to the very first trickle of water that comes out of the national forest. With the coronavirus pandemic now, there's still a lot of uncertainty about whether people should hike or help with conservation at parks. What advice do you have for those who volunteer with the Chattahoochee Riverkeeper? We have decided to postpone a number of our volunteer engagement activities um, between March and this week, actually. And we are planning to use all of the standard best practices, including masks and gloves and sanitizer. I think what the experts have been saying about maintaining a distance and being outdoors in the sunlight really helps lower the risk of contracting and spreading the virus. 
So, um, so long as we use these protective measures um, like distance, like masks, we're outdoors, um, I think that we can really um, start to re-engage in the work of river protection, but also um, manage the risk of spreading and contracting the virus. Great. I read that with each ticket sold, one dollar will be donated to the North Georgia Community Foundation's Coronavirus Relief Fund. Whom does this fund benefit? The fund is intended to benefit the communities that are served by the North Georgia Community Foundation, um, many of which are in the Gainesville Hall County community. Uh, we chose to select that fund because we wanted to um, show that we were mindful of the crisis that many of our neighbors are experiencing um, and give back to the community that has so long contributed to the success of this film festival. For each of you, what are your hopes people will take away from this film festival? My hope for those who watch the films is that they will see themselves in the human stories of achievement and overcoming what once seemed like an insurmountable obstacle. There are very heartwarming stories of people, individuals, including young people, people who do not speak the common majority language, who have uh, taken upon themselves, felt a call to action to use their voices to make a difference. And um, it's really inspiring. These films, while they talk about and address serious issues, um, they are issues that we all deal with um, in one form or another. And feeling that a sense of empowerment that one person can make a difference, I think really helps people feel that um, they too can be a part of a solution. One thing that I love about the Wild and Scenic Film Festival is almost this personal sense of slightly being overwhelmed by many different topics that range across the world. And I think it's important to have that feeling sometimes and look to the inside and just overall just want to be a better person and take care of the resources we have around us. Filmmaker Andrew Linker, part of the Wild and Scenic Film Festival, with Juliet Cohen, Executive Director of Chattahoochee Riverkeeper. The virtual film festival kicks off June 18th. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Atlanta-based writer Anissa Gray is an Emmy Award-winning journalist at CNN Worldwide. Saturday, the Georgia Author of the Year Awards announced that she won the award for Best Debut Novel, the Care and Feeding of Ravenously Hungry Girls is a family saga told by three sisters. I spoke with Anissa Gray right after the release of her book in 2019. Here she explains why this story opens with the protagonist, Althea, in jail. Althea and her husband committed fraud against their community and embezzled money. So it was a financial crime. In her prison bed at night, Althea recalls her mother's funeral. She was only 12. That's right. The eldest of the four Butler family children. And she remembers that her mother once said, boys and men are earth and stone. Hmm. But you girls, us women, we're water. We can wear away earth and stone if it comes to it. So Althea's reaction to the idea of dust to dust mm -hmm. is that mama will never be dust. 
And this portion of Althea's narrative about a young girl's inconsolable grief is so beautifully written. Did you yourself deal with the early loss of a parent? Um, uh, fortunately, no, I have not. Both of my parents are still alive. But one of the things you do, you know, I think one of the gifts sort of God gives authors is uh, the gift of extreme empathy. So while I have not um, experienced that level of grief myself, um, I can imagine um, on a very deep level what it would be for someone else and particularly a child of 12 years old. Mm. And I try to convey that there in Althea's story. The book is written in alternating chapters from the viewpoint of Althea and her two sisters. Mm -hmm. There are also letters from Proctor, who is in jail, along with his wife, Althea. Althea. Uh Lillian's chapter is second, and its setting is the courtroom sentencing. What is Lillian's role in the family? Well, Lillian is the baby girl, and her experience is slightly different from her older siblings because her older siblings were at a distance from their father. Lillian, on the other hand, was very close to him. And I think it sort of speaks to how siblings can sort of experience things differently and and uh, come to understand life differently. And I think Lillian speaks to that aspect of the story. The two older siblings have a very specific view of their father, uh, and it's not positive. Lillian, on the other hand, loves her father deeply, and that's largely because she had a relationship with him that the other two did not. She also likes to make things beautiful. Her profession is interior design. That's right, yeah. She moved back from trendy Brooklyn, where she (laughs) had a good career. Um, I love that her cat is named Thelonious. (laughs) After the Thelonious monk, of course. The Thelonious. Lillian's ex-husband has died. Mm -hmm. He was of Chinese background. He was. And Lillian takes care of her ex-grandmother-in-law. That's correct. Whom they call by the Mandarin nickname of Nene. Uh Nene is a great character, and she provides some comic relief. Why is Nene important to this story? One of the things I wanted to sort of accomplish is um, a look at uh, generational differences. So while you have the sisters who are in their 50s, their 40s, and their 30s, you have Nai Nai, who is at the end of her life. She's in her 80s, and she's seen a thing or two. Oh. And yet she is still struggling, even right there at the end, and you see a... um, and you see the relationship between her and Lillian and Lillian sort of helping her uh, to the end of her life. So I wanted to sort of capture um, the lives of these women at different stages. And you have um, Nai Nai there at the end of her life. And Lillian, I guess you could say in addition to wanting to make everything prettier, better, cast <laughs> a better light on yeah. everything. Um, She's also the most outwardly sympathetic. Yeah, it, it's really interesting. I'm starting to hear from readers, and Lillian is, you know, far and away uh, the character uh, people seem to gravitate to and, and just love the most. Viola, the third sister we meet as she is separating from her wife, she's severely depressed and later we learn she suffers from bulimia. How would you describe Viola's relationship to and with her sisters? Um, she's sort of the, um, the balancing point in the middle. She's very close to Althea, and she's very close to Lillian, whereas Lillian and Althea have a difficult relationship. She's sort of the go-between between the two of those. And um, Interestingly enough, she is 
also the middle sister. Mm -hmm. Viola's struggle with bulimia is graphic and very painful to read. The description of Viola's illness, which appears early in the book, made me wonder if your familiarity was personal, your familiarity with bulimia. It is for sure uh, personal. In fact, when I started writing this book, I was writing only about Viola and her, um, her sort of struggle with an eating disorder. Uh, but the story felt a little bit too narrowly focused and it was from there that um, I sort of broadened my scope and, and, and brought in her sisters. But yes, originally the story centered around Viola's uh, eating disorder, which uh, is loosely based on some of my own experiences in treatment. Oh, Lord. How difficult was it for you to write that chapter about Viola's binging and purging and effectively falling off the face of the earth? I don't. I won't say that it was easy, but it was cathartic. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll say that much. It, it certainly wasn't easy. I mean, you're confronting, um, you know, experiences you've had yourself. Uh, certainly in my case, but at the same time, um, from a place of, of of freedom and health, so that made it more cathartic than difficult. Good for you. Thank you. The Cochrans. Althea and Proctor owned a restaurant and a little grocery. Mm -hmm. Part of their crime involved food stamps, and we have become painfully familiar with uh, Viola's bulimia. Food is even an issue for Nainai, who craves her high-cholesterol McDonald's <laughs> breakfast every day and insists upon it. Anissa, would you talk about the theme of hunger in this book? Mm, I, I think that's very much at the heart of the book. It, um, it, the story sort of examines all of the different hungers that um, sort of plague us, whether for good or for ill. But in this case, um, it's usually for ill. There's um, Viola's eating disorder, as we uh, discussed. But also for Althea and Lillian, um, there is they've both endured profound losses in their lives, and you have them grasping at uh, whatever they can get to comfort themselves. So that sort of rests at the heart of everything, I think, sort of how we fill those hollow spaces, and that's what all three of these women are trying to do. And um, Proctor and Althea have twin girls. They They're do. teenagers. Yeah. Their hunger is for love and stability, in both of which are difficult to come by in this story. That's absolutely true. The Butlers are a black family, mm -hmm. but race is not at the heart of this story. The crime Althea and Proctor commit, they're compared to Bernie Madoff. <laughs> Lillian's yeah. ex-husband was Chinese. Mm -hmm. We don't know whether the people they ripped off are black or white, and it doesn't seem to matter. No, they just, the whole community. <laughs> yes, everyone. <laughs> it's a community in, in that portion of Michigan. <laughs> Why does this stand out in comparison with other contemporary fiction by black writers? Um, uh, stand out um, as being sort of... It, race is, I don't want to say it's incidental. It, it's, it has its importance, mm -hmm. but it is not the issue. Yeah, I, yeah, I was asked about that recently. And um, when I sat down to write this story... You know, it occurred to me that, you know, obviously they are black. I'm black, you know. Um, my family's black, of course. But the themes are universal. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter your race. I think you can come to this story and see some something that you understand. I mean, we all understand loss. We all understand desperation. And um, we all understand a family and this family happens to be in crisis. Mm. So 
I, th I think there are universal themes that pretty much anyone can identify with. Now, I know this is your first novel. Mm -hmm. Your career has been in journalism. Your writing is so lyrical. Have you written poetry before turning to fiction? I haven't, no. Um, you know, as a kid, I, in, I was a big reader, for one. Um, but um, I also wrote stories. I'll say that I'm drawn to writers who have a more lyrical style. Toni Morrison, uh, Jeanette Winterson, she's a British writer. If you haven't read her, I would. she has written some of the most beautiful sentences I've ever mm. read. So I'm drawn to that type of writing. So I think I'm probably deeply influenced. Well, if I could read just a couple <laughs> passages that <laughs> made me write in the margin of my book, poetry. My words condense into a cloud and disappear into the night air. There's no one around to hear me, not even a car on the street except for mine. The silver Lexus sedan parked down the road. The one functioning street light shines above it, a glowing dot of honey. Okay, <laughs> then this one. <laughs> I looked up at the jagged skyline, a light in the night. The steel, the glass, the concrete, the cranes, the antennas. I imagined Chicagoans rushing through the streets, unaware of the conversations, the consequential information moving above their heads into the ether. I imagine what Althea and I said, and I see our words as digital dust, raining down in want of fertile ground. I'm from Chicago, and I All think right. Carl Sandburg would have approved of that. Well, thank you. That, that's wonderful. Yeah, I love the city of Chicago, by the way. Well, that's quite a <laughs> depiction. Back on the theme of water, Althea has a revelatory moment when reading her mother's handwritten notes to a passage from her mother's Bible. What does she take away from Ezekiel? Can you remind me of the scripture? Okay. <laughs> oh, it's dry bones. Dry, dry bones. bones. Sorry. <laughs> hey, um, you're the preacher's kid. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that's sort of where that came from, my background as a preacher's kid. I think it reminds her of her mother and that moment in the funeral that you referred to earlier where the preacher pronounces uh, her mother dust, you know, dust thou art and, and unto dust thou shall return. And I think it revives that sort of defiance in her. No, we are more than, we're, we're more than dust, you know. It reminds her that what her mother said, that women are water. We are stronger stuff. At one point, she refers to herself as a force of nature. Yes. So I think it gets back to that sort of reinforcing this underlying strength that she needs in that moment. And the last section of the book is titled Water of Life. It's prefaced with a quote from Langston Hughes, mm. I've known rivers, ancient dusky rivers, my soul has grown deep like the rivers. The river is also associated with baptism. Water mm -hmm. is the Christian symbol of divine life, as well as a sign of purity and cleansing from sin. Has thirst been quenched and hunger satisfied by the end of this story? I like to think so. One of the ways I think about this book is that um, they don't get tidy endings. Things aren't wrapped up with a bow, but I think it's a hopeful ending. So, and you know, I'd, I'd love to hear what readers think, but just in my own writing and my own regard of the characters, I see them on the cusp of something better. St. Joseph, the patron saint of travelers figures mm -hmm. into the story as well. I read that you were born in St. Joseph, Michigan. I was, and the St. Joseph River also uh, features uh, heavily uh, in that as well. Yeah. So that brings back that water in the river thing. So very important throughout the story. And Joe is the only male 
among the Butler siblings. His mm-hmm. behavior isn't very saint-like, but was not. his name coincidental? <laughs> I would say his name is coincidental. Yeah. He's named after the father, in fact. Okay, well, Anissa Gray, this is a powerful and beautifully written book. I don't think these characters are characters for me, the real people whom I will think about from time to time. And Thank you for saying that. It's wonderful. Well, congratulations. Thank you. you. Thank you. Definitely a labor of love. Atlanta-based journalist and writer Anissa Gray. Her book, The Care and Feeding of Ravenously Hungry Girls, just won her a Georgia Author of the Year Award for Best Debut Novel. In a moment, we'll hear about an early 20th century German language novel with a young biracial protagonist from Vienna whose visit to the U.S. lands him in the 1906 Atlanta race riots. This is City Lights on WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. In the novel The Blue Stain... A young man of mixed race travels from Europe and is aghast at the racism he encounters in the United States. Moving from New York to the South, he takes a stand after witnessing Atlanta's race riots of 1906. Perhaps the most extraordinary thing about this book is the fact that it was published in 1922 and never released in the United States. In 2017, two Emory professors, Peter Huring and Jeff Meller, who spent years translating the book from the original German, joined me on City Lights. Professor Huring began with What led to his discovery of the book? I was working on an essay uh, on the same author, Hugo Bettauer, in Vienna at the National Library and uh, was working on a novel for which he's best known. It's called The City Without Jews. And that's pretty shocking. And that is pretty shocking. He kind of basically predicted in many ways what happened in 1938 when all the Jews uh, were persecuted in Austria after the so-called annexation or Anschluss. And Beethoven published that in 1922, and then I discovered a little footnote saying, oh, he also published the same year a novel that takes place in Vienna and Georgia, Atlanta. (laughs) And I said, wait a second. Uh, that I have to see. And then uh, I asked for the book, the original, and uh, lo and behold, I was blown away uh, because we don't have anything prior to this in the 20th century, any novel in German that I'm aware of uh, taking place in the United States, in the South, in Atlanta. So it's a unique novel by all means. And it has been a long-term project Uh, uh, over the last uh, decade or so. Would you tell us about the title? Uh, It's in German called Das Blaue Mal. And I suggested back then that should be translated as The Blue Mark. But then Jeff 
kept on being very insistent, saying, no, 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 it has to be the blue stain. And you explain why we ended up with this title. Well, the word mal has many different connotations in German. Cain's uh, mal, the mark of Cain, uh, is, is one. Geburtsmal, a birthmark. So the, the, uh, the idea of mark is, is one aspect. But it refers to a bluish cast that uh, is alleged to be under the fingernails of uh, African Americans or uh, people of mixed European and African descent. So the coloration was, uh, for me, uh, um, the factor that moved me in the direction of using the word stain for mal because the, co- the coloration is frequently referred to in the text. Would you give a brief synopsis? Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a novel with three major uh, chapters or sections. The first uh, is entitled Georgia. The entire novel plays in Jim Crow um, South. And it's the story of uh, the protagonist's father coming to um, a town called Irvington in a plantation society and is assaulted by the racism that he sees uh, and experiences in the Georgia uh, environment. By his host. By his host. By the Wilcox family, which owns a large plantation. The wife, uh, uh, Harriet Wilcox, uh, is from Boston. And she is very much as racist as anybody else and, in fact, provokes a kind of attitude among the young white men to go out and uh, lynch or uh, in some way harass the the black people on the uh, plantation there. The elder gentleman is, uh, you know, sort of a classic Nordic, blonde, blue-eyed, Aryan type. And then he falls in love with one of the uh, daughters of former slaves and holds back to this his, to his affection but listens at night when she sings blues songs uh, and is very intrigued by her and then one day is so outraged when in fact he's witnessing a lynching of her relatives and that night they both flee via train to Atlanta in a different compartment, each of them. And they end up in Piedmont Park, and there they conceive a child. Yeah, the, the son is uh, baptized, mm-hmm. Rolf Carlo Zeller, uh, but he goes by the name Carletto, a kind of pet name, uh, pet name especially in, in Vienna. So uh, Carlo is born uh, in New York, The mother dies in childbirth, and the father immediately decides to take his uh, baby son back to uh, Vienna. And that was part one. And part two takes place in Vienna, and we are now 20 years later, and he's a very handsome, somewhat olive-complexion guy uh, studying law. He's more intrigued by women from the upper echelon of society and fancies them and they fancy him, but he certainly realizes quickly that he cannot really live that lifestyle for a long time like a playboy and falls in love and is intrigued by a woman from, uh, should we say, lower class. And she has relatives in New York and they both decide to then uh, get engaged in New York. And then comes part three. He enters New York. He still has some money left uh, of his former lifestyle and wants to continue, and therefore first enters after the boat trip uh, the fancy St. Regis Hotel in New York and is immediately kicked out. And he has no clue why, what for, and uh, is baffled, basically and then continues to go from one establishment to the next to find a hotel, to find food, but every time uh, it repeats itself and he's disillusioned and can't figure out until someone tells him, 
look, young man, you are conceived or considered to be black, and you are now in the United States. And um, well, yeah, and all of this happens. He uh, the the movement from Hotel St. Regis to Hotel Belvedere and, and all of that in New York takes place in the course of nine hours. It, from noon until uh, the evening, he is confronted, assaulted by this racial rejection of him that he, as a educated European man, he doesn't understand at all. Particularly since he is so handsome and so desired, dashing, 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 um, considered maybe Spanish, maybe Italian, the nickname Carletto adds to it. He is exotic to the Viennese, but not in the U.S. He's instantly perceived as black. A large part Mm -hmm. of what is disturbing about reading this book is the racial prejudice he encounters not only in the South, but every bit as much in New York. And while he is persecuted, he feels no sympathy for blacks, much less identification, and his contempt becomes self-contempt. Do you think it was audacious for Bettauer to presume he could write about black self-loathing? To some extent, Hugo Bettauer's own biography plays in because he comes uh, from an assimilated Jewish family in Vienna or just outside of Vienna. And that self-loathing is certainly an element uh, that Jews carried on during that period of time after they uh, gained first-time civil rights in Austria in 1867. And so they became part of society and yet somewhat ostracized. And uh, this kind of sensitivity is something that Hugo Bettel brought to his character of Caletto uh, as someone who does not want or struggles with the experience that he's all of a sudden perceived as black and who, as you correctly pointed out, is somewhat self-loathing about it to the point that basically throughout the novel he's so fed up that he wants to be no, I mean, as soon as possible back in Vienna. Except, (laughs) yes, except that then he runs into Jane Morris, a beautiful African-American woman, and things take a different turn. Uh, literally runs into her. He's, yes. e- he's exiting the train station in Birmingham on his way to Atlanta and bumps into her. <laughs> and um, and that's the last part of the novel that is very intriguing and became very intriguing and the reason, one of the major reasons why I initially wanted to translate it is that in the end he not only accepts his black heritage but then he stands up and wants to fight for civil rights and uh, all triggered by the Atlanta race riots from 1906. That blew me away. If that hadn't been the case, I'm not sure whether I would have gone through the um, long uh, process of making all of this happening together with Jeff. Uh, But that is a very moving ending and unfortunately still very timely, uh, or I should say again very timely, uh, to stand up for uh, for against injustice, for dis- against uh, discrimination, and so on. And one of the things I think you might have noticed uh, in reading the book, how vivid and visual the book is. I felt like I was reading a screenplay in yeah. many ways. Yeah. Not the least of which is that it's so melodramatic. Yes. And I was hoping you would comment on this. I mean, many of the characters are really caricatures. And what literary 
value is there in the story? Well, that's a very good question. Um, there's, of course, a reason why this novel has been forgotten in among literary historians of German studies, because he's not a modernist writer like Thomas Mann, like James Joyce, like Franz Kafka. That is lacking. He writes or he wrote deliberately for a mass audience. And he deliberately wrote something with a political context and intention to enlighten his audience. And so of his 22 novels, they all have that kind of impetus of being critical of some issue in society and highlighting it through a very plot-driven narrative like in The Blue Stain, ending melodramatically <laughs> with a love story that is somewhat sobby, and yet it is difficult to resist that drive that he has. The afterword was very valuable Thank you. in terms of um, appreciating the story. And one, one theme that is addressed in the afterword is how the blue stain is similar to some writing of the Harlem Renaissance. Would you talk about that? Well, I'm not as conversant in the Harlem Renaissance as our colleague uh, Kenneth R. Jenkins from North Carolina Chapel Hill uh, is. And that, of course, was the reason why we invited him to write about it and see more the connection. What, however, is striking, and there is that, that connection, is that Beethoven, number one, was well-versed around 1922 about the discussion of uh, the early NAACP, uh, was well aware of how to advance civil rights and what is the best route. It's actually discussed in the book, in the novel, when Jane and Caletto, again, on the way to Atlanta, uh, discuss which way is the better way, the uh, Booker T. Washington, uh, it, along with his Atlanta Compromise, or uh, W.B. Du Bois' uh, approach to a liberal arts education accessible to all African Americans. And it's very clear that uh, Beethoven takes the stance of Du Bois and was very conversant of uh, the crisis, the uh, uh, um, newspaper by the NAACP. So that is highly unusual for someone, again, in coming out of Austria, to educate his audience about something that was completely new in 1922. This is even before Josephine Baker made it to become the star in first in France, of course, in Paris, and, and then later also in Germany and Austria. So this was very early that he's aware of the discussion going on in uh, the United States about racial issues and how to advance the cases for Afro-Americans. And yet, as enlightening as this is, it's also, oh, I guess, scary to see how many stereotypes are perpetuated in this writing. Um, you know, the idea of blacks being hot-blooded. Mm -hmm. yes. oh, uh, and even... Jane, the the intellectual young woman he eventually falls in love with, who saves him. Mm -hmm. Even Jane says she thinks it's going to be centuries mm -hmm. before blacks can make mm -hmm. any significant intellectual contributions. Before any geniuses emerge, yeah, something Thank like Thank you, that. before any yeah. geniuses emerge. Um, you know, I was just... Screaming yeah. practically in frustration. <laughs> yeah. But this was the perception. And one of the things that I think is especially valuable in the afterword was how he points out that the idea of blacks being well received in Europe is really kind of a myth. 
Correct. But um, you point out a very important part that I struggled with when I discovered the novel, and it's pretty striking. It's progressive stance for 1922 to end the novel with a clear statement for the fight for social justice, for racial justice, and to advance the NAACP. There's no doubt about it. At the same time, I had to struggle with the fact, as you pointed out, it, it carries on a lot of stereotypes. We also had lively discussions uh, about to what extent is it really, can you call this a progressive novel, because, precisely because of the a stereotypes, blatant and, you say, primal, and B, also because um, the attitude basically remains that the African Americans have to rise up to our standards, that is, the standards by the whites. And that is very disturbing, uh, to say the very least. And yet I find it worthwhile, and that's why we pursued this kind of project to translate it, because a triangulation to have this seen the whole discrimination in the United States and segregation and Jim Crow through the eyes from outside opens up a space to discuss more easily these topics that unfortunately are still prevalent or again prevalent uh, in today's society. So it is despite its shortcomings that the novel undoubtedly has, it nevertheless brings up issues that are worthwhile to explore and to discuss today. My 2017 conversation with Emory professors Peter Huring and Jeff Meller discussing their translation of Hugo Bettauer's novel The Blue Stain. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. to hear about the PBS series, Our National Parks, America's Best Idea. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to 90.1 W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.